So I'm going to um, do some of the talking and then let you guys do most of the talking. Thank you very much, brother. Let you guys do most of the talking. Uh, we are covering a book by Thaddeus Williams called um, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. Uh, interesting that Chris prayed that we would understand the power of God's truth because it is, uh, well, uh, we are dependent upon the truth of God. God has built us to need the truth. And it is at the heart of what all the justice issues are, are circling, which is tell me what the truth is, and then we can engage. If the truth is different for every person, there is no way to have justice. Does that make sense? There's no way to seek justice if the truth is different for everybody. That's been kind of the common theme throughout the entire book and our, and our time together. These were the topics we've covered uh, so far. We've done justice and worship, uh, justice and community, justice and salvation. Today is justice and knowledge. Um, and so the, the, the topic, this is just a fancy word. The topic is uh, epistemology, but it's really how do we know things? And if we can at least come to some conclusion of how we know things, then we can talk about what the truth is. And if we can talk about the truth, then we can fight for justice. Because justice is based on understanding what is true, right? And if we all have a different definition of truth, we will never have a good de a discussion on justice. It's why our current culture is having a difficult time having that discussion. We do not agree on what's true. We just don't. And so that discussion of what is just and what is real justice is going to have a lot of um, personal flavor to it. So... Um, I use the term OS. OS is an operating system, right? Your phone has one. Your computer has one. Your car has one. <clears throat> um, and you have one. You were designed with an, an operating system by which you process information and knowledge and ultimately come to understand what truth is, right? Or not. But you have an operating system that you're using. So how does your, what does your operating system use externally to know things? What does it take for you and I to know things? This will be the hardest question of the day. And then we'll get into the, the three questions that Thaddeus Williams asked to say, if your view of justice um, has this, you're probably going to have an issue with real justice. So back up for a second. This is a question of how do we know anything at all what is it that helps people know things? Your operating system takes what into account? All right, so you do have some background in your, in your history. Um, you have a lineage, a place from which you came that has influence on what you think you know, right? And what you think is true has an influence on all those things. Um, a lot of our kids, I have kids, you have, many of you have kids, um, they struggle with, is what you taught me the truth? And if it is, then we can have a great conversation. If it's not, how can I trust you or anybody else that shares your view, like anybody else in here, right? Because we're generally going to hold the same things as true, generally speaking. So um, where you came from, your household, has an effect on that. How else, what other sources of... Uh, knowledge come that your operating system deals with and says, this is what I know and how I know things. One is your, 
your household, your background, your lived experience, things that happen to you that now impact and alter what you believe to be true. Uh, this is a big topic in my extended family, many of whom do not know Jesus. And so when, when we have these conversations, much of what they address with me is, you haven't experienced what I experienced. And because you, Sean, have not experienced what I experienced, you can't say that that truth affects me the same way that it affects you. Unless, and I would say to your sister or brother, unless... Those experiences are to be understood in light of an overarching truth, a bigger picture than just what you've experienced. So an example, um, I had a friend this week who came to me and said, hey, I had lunch with a guy I used to pastor in Millington eons ago. Uh, I had lunch with a guy who was in your church in Millington, was one of your elders and uh, a Baptist church with elders, imagine that. Uh, um, and he said, say hello. And um, this guy that was an elder at the church when I first met him, an unbeliever, did not believe in Jesus, the scriptures, anything, mostly atheistic, and um, his wife asked that we sit down for lunch one day, and so I, I took him out for lunch, and we talked, and just used the most simple question, and it was this, um, Jim, is his name, and if Jim were here, he wouldn't mind if I used his name, uh, Jim, this is what you know, this is what there is to know, this is how much you know. This is the set of what there is to know. What if what you know has never come across anything that would lead you to an understanding of who Jesus is and what God did for you through Jesus? What if you never came across that? There are people on this planet that never come across that information. Ever. Does that mean that that information about who Jesus is and what God did for us in Christ is no longer applicable to the person who only knows this? And the answer is absolutely not. In fact, the Bible says we are, by nature, guilty because our conscience, Romans chapter 2, will stand up and say, even on the last day, even on the last day, those who don't believe, their conscience will stand up and say, you knew there was a God. You knew there was. Only a fool says there's not. Only a fool says there's no God. You knew there was a God. You fought this your whole life. You're a rebel at heart. So am I. So am I. <clears throat> and so, Jim, if you've never experienced who Jesus is, and that's somewhere out here, maybe that's what God is doing today is introducing you to who Jesus is. It was a matter of months. Um, called me up, asked what it means to become a Christian. How could he join the church? Uh, years later, became an elder in the church and is still serving as uh, a leader in a Presbyterian church. No longer Baptist. Uh, Presbyterian church up in uh, Shelby County. Um, amazing. But the question was, you never experienced these things about who Jesus is. Does that mean those experiences don't apply or are not authoritative over you? That's what, part of what you have to deal with on what you know and what you don't know. So, so far, Wes gave us um, the household that you were born in affects your operating system and what you think you know. Your lived experiences, whether good or bad, and, and a lot of them are mostly bad, when you start thinking about what's shaped you, a lot of things, negative things shaped your views on things. <clears throat> Not all, but many. What else, what else do you encounter exper um, experiences yeah, so, um, so there's where, you, where you're born, the household you're born into, things that happen to you, and then the other things you're exposed to, there's supposed to be a greater um, uh, set of information on what's out there, right? 
Uh, it's one of the reasons why I, I often say when it comes to missions, one of the things I would certainly do as a pattern is start to go. It's great to give. It's great to pray. All those things are great. But at some point, it would be good to go because it's amazing to see people who have virtually nothing materially worshiping God in joy and happiness. And we, many times, are sullen and sad. We have everything and Jesus, right? So getting out and um, learning other things from other perspectives, another perspective, imagine that. Putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, imagine that. Where you can learn something from them. I'm not saying <clears throat> that um, by doing that, you're, you're going to change what you believe. Maybe you will, but it doesn't necessarily do that. Most of the time, it just gives you a different perspective that you need. I would say you need it. Um, I think you could find scripture that says you need to have a broader understanding of what's going on in the world around you. Uh, that's what Paul was saying to the people of uh, Greece, Athens, <clears throat> when he's at Mars Hill, and he basically says, there's a God you don't know. Never, you've never experienced this God. You think you have. You've put a, a statue up, but you don't know him. So this lesson is really about epistemology. What do you know? How did you come to know it? And how do you evaluate things in light of the truth so that you might actually work towards justice? Because what we said in the very first day is it's absolutely right and good. You are commanded by God to do justice. And the question is, so what is that? What is justice? And justice is always connected to truth, always. How do you know things? That's all we're going to talk about today. Um, there are three questions in every lesson, and these are questions from the book that Thaddeus uh, gives us to say, if this is true of you, your thinking of justice is probably flawed, right? So today we're going to couch everything in this understanding of how do we know things, where does our knowledge come from <clears throat> in light of what he calls tribes thinking? Um, I, I need to give you at least some uh, summary of what he refers to as tribes thinking. So he's using it as an acrostic, but he's basically saying um, a lot of tribes thinking, which is cultural, um, uh, sort of cultural presentations of, of information, are in these categories. Listen, just listen to these. <clears throat> that um, oppressors are right-wing Christians trying to cram their outdated morality down everybody else's throats with the coercive powers of law. In other words, we are engaging in the political realm, and the reason we're doing that is so we can make all the laws reflect our Christian values so that others who don't share those values are oppressed, that that's our intent. It's not the intent, but we certainly have a responsibility to represent good and truth and justice. And I would say you have a responsibility politically to, since God has given you such, to speak. And to do that in a way that is honoring him and glorifying him and influencing things. But he says one is um, people who want to use their religious views to oppress others. <clears throat> the oppressors are those who marginalize and dehumanize people who do not share their skin tone or ethnic identity. In other words, people, um, and generally in the culture, there's a, there's a group uh, dynamic going on, but you're racist. You've got to deal with your own racism. Uh, beware of the Islamophobes. The oppressors are those who fear that most, if not all, Muslims are hate-mongering terrorists rather than peace-loving neighbors. Uh, basically, that general statement about Muslims is what uh, is really an oppressive statement. Um, beware the bigots. The oppressors are those who, uh, through their 
heteronormative power to deny the rights and humanity of the LGBTQIA plus community. So um, because you are heteronormative, you believe by design, God made male and female, that relationships ultimately um, that reflect um, God's design for marriage are male and female, that you use those heteronormative thinking, that, that thinking to oppress people who don't share your view. Right? Um, that's, what, that's what's being said. Uh, one more, two more categories. Um, the oppressors are those who capital, whose capitalist greed leads them to use and abuse the poor for their own selfish materialistic gain. And then finally, the oppressors are men who deny equal rights, equal access to power, and equal pay to maintain a patriarchal tyranny over half of our species. Women, yes, sir. White men, yes. <coughs> so, um, he introduces that, that's an acrostic for tribes and the different groups that are oppressing people because of their views. And, and, um, and there, are, there are two, there are tribes thinking that leads to a couple of conclusions. Um, you need to see both of these. So if people are only seen in categories of oppressor and oppressed, you've heard that a lot in the, in the thinking of the culture these days, then our operating system will be flawed. If that's the only way you can uh, deal with people is oppressor and oppressed, which category are you? Most of you would fall into oppressor. Most of you fall into oppressor, according to that system. However, is it possible that somebody who is uh, guilty of oppression, if you are, could also be oppressed? And if so, isn't that um, a challenge to this thinking? Yes. So it's one of the things we're going to look at in the questions that Thaddeus asks. And then finally, if we never acknowledge that real people have indeed been harmed by real injustice, our operating system will be flawed. So this is the other side of that, which is if we deny that people's lived experiences or um, experiences at the hands of others has never resulted in injustice, which is a crazy statement. That's the one you've got to avoid, too. One is that it's always unjust. The other one is that it's never been unjust. Those are both crazy statements, right? And Thaddeus sets those up as these questions are going to be asked in light of that kind of thinking. And don't think that that thinking's not out there. We, sh we shared several examples, very prominent uh, authors who have spoken very specifically on you are, by definition, an oppressor if you have a certain skin color. And you are, by definition, oppressed if you have the other skin color. Because in that thinking, there's only two. Well, what about all the others? What about the oppression that comes from other sources and directions? All of which we should care about because we're Christians who are to do justice and to help the oppressed. And so we need to have some idea of what is that? Who are the oppressed? What is oppression? Let's talk about it. So here's question one. This is the tunnel vision question. If you remember, all the 12 questions have some name for the question. This is the tunnel vision question. This is the one that says your perspective, if it's the only perspective, that's a problem. So here's the question. Does your vision of justice make one way of seeing something the only way of seeing something? And you know people like this, you may actually have been accused of being like this. I, I never, it's never happened. But the one way of seeing something is the only way of seeing something. And, and you are familiar with people like that. If that's true, that there is only one way to see something, then your operating system, your sense of justice is going to be flawed. 
You're going to ask questions about, well, what about biblical truth? There's not multiple ways to see biblical truth. This question is only about what is true and how to understand how that truth um, is impacting us as we, as we engage in things. So if, you're, if your statements are always and never, you need to be careful. You just need to be careful. That's all. I can say um, there's, uh, it's always been the truth that there's only one God and he uh, reveals himself in three persons and that's always going to be true. Right? But as we engage with the other people and say there's only one way to see things when they have certain experiences or certain knowledge, um, and we do this a little bit in social media, we counter each other. Well, my article says this. Well, my article says that. Well, my data came from this. Well, my data came from this. And we bash each other's data based on whatever the category is of the day. But that's, that's sort of the tunnel vision question. Um, <clears throat> what the Bible talks about uh, is there's an integrated view. Integrated simply means whole. There's a whole view of life and truth. Um, things that you see sometimes and things you don't. Uh, a couple of points to make here. When a true insight into some things becomes the way to see most or all things, um, when you're very young, this is what you do all the time. You find something true, you cling to it, and you start, you start saying this is it. It's amazing how those things change over time because you do get more information, more experience, more... It's why, it's why older people say you need to, you need to just hold on. My grown kids call me now with, with their more complex problems than they had when they were this big. As all of you know. If you have yours that are this big right now, have fun. Enjoy it. Because it's not going to stay that way. Um, so they call with their more complex problems. One's married now, two married now, and the other two are not. Um, and their problems are more complex and have all kinds of issues. And, um, and all the time I'm asking them to say, have you thought about this? Have you looked at it this way? Do you understand that maybe you have never um, experienced X, Y, or Z, but others have? So we're all just trying to figure out um, that one, um, one piece of information to start to go to town on that and say, this is it. This is it. And there are examples of that kind of um, epistemology, how we know things that can go wildly off the rails. <clears throat> the example that Thaddeus uses is Planned Parenthood and the online oppressor. If you read the book, you know this is what happened. Um, a student at Biola Christian University was um, positively speaking to Planned Parenthood on an online social media network, right? And in that social, on, uh, social media online network, they began to talk about the, um, the benefits of Planned Parenthood. If you say they never do anything that benefits anybody, you've made a mistake. I also would like to see them shut down forever. But if we say the reason for that is because they never do anything that helps anybody, you'd be making a mistake, and your, your statement would not be factual. <clears throat> so this um, student at Biola began to speak positively of Planned Parenthood, but never addressed any of the negative issues. And there are significant negative issues. If you're going to look at an organization that you're going to um, measure by its past, Planned Parenthood should receive zero dollars. Zero. They have been, in their history, one of the greater oppressors of the African-American community 
uh, when it comes to female health care. They were also guilty of, and everybody saw it, of video taken of Planned Parenthood executives bartering human parts. That is evil. Um, should not be condoned in any way, shape, or form through Planned Parenthood. And they are a massive abortion provider in our country, um, which is, um, if you are going to say that uh, we, need to be care, we need to care about the health care of women, I would say, of course. And I would say, why would you not also care about the health care of the unborn child? Why, are those why is that information always set to the side and never presented? Which is what Thaddeus Williams did. He went on that social media platform with a student who was espousing the greatness of Planned Parenthood and said, what about these things? What about these issues? And no response, but another student chimed in and said, you bigot, you oppressor, you bad person, because you dared say a negative thing about an organization who has some benefit, particularly to um, inner city females and their health care. And, and again, you can't deny that part, but you also have to say, and what about all these other things? Are there not any other issues that we should be addressing in this discussion of truth? And um, one way of seeing things is the only way of seeing so it's how you and I continue to engage, I hope, in saying there are um, examples of things that um, you can look at, organizations that have done some good things. Um, I am not a fan of the government handling every social program on planet Earth. They're not very good at it. There's no data that shows that they're good at it. But are you saying that there's no good that comes from a government uh, system or program and you would be wrong. There are many examples of good things that came out <clears throat> and have been established. I wouldn't say they, they're 100% good, but there are some good things that happen, and there are some negative things. Um, so I, I teach at Union University um, uh, at the Memphis campus called MCUTS, and one of our discussions we have regularly is this topic of government uh, work and assistance and what nonprofits do. And who is better, from a data standpoint, from a statistical standpoint, at managing resources to get to the right people? And the answer is not the government. They're large. It's big. It's a, it's a sledgehammer. But it's not a surgical um, approach. All that Thaddeus was saying was, can you consider the other things about Planned Parenthood in your um, glowing review of them? That's a reasonable thing to ask. Yes? You should ask yourself, too. Is there not, in the things that we hammer and, and whack, whack on regularly, is there not anything positive that's being done? There's, there's usually, I'm going to tell you, if, if there's some um, real staying power for some organizations, it's probably because there's some stuff that they do that's okay. I'm not saying that's 100% the case, <clears throat> but they wouldn't be able to stick around if they weren't doing anything well, right? Companies that don't, don't do anything well, they don't stick around. They don't survive. Uh, churches that don't do anything well, they don't stick around. So organizations that don't do anything well typically go the way of all the earth. There's usually something that they do really well, and other things they probably don't. And then lastly, 
you're missing the main thing, uh, which is the gospel. Does your vision of justice lead to more proclamation of the gospel or move you away from it to other topics? This is probably the biggest thing I'm going to say today. So um, if you've drifted thinking about something else, come back. I'm going to look at eyeballs. Come back. Um, for, for those who are interested in some form of justice, even social justice, this is a question I've asked many times. Does your activity in the social justice realm and your thinking about justice, does it lead you to more and more proclamation of the good news of Jesus or less and less proclamation of the good news of Jesus? And in almost every case where the, the drive to do things from a one point of view, oppressor oppressed, social justice um, in, the, in the worst definition of that kind of way <clears throat> leads most people to not proclaim the gospel. They get fewer and fewer, um, there are fewer and fewer opportunities or motivations to share the gospel. Because, this is my, this is Sean's summary of what Thaddeus is saying. He didn't say it, I'm saying it. Because what's really at the heart of a of the non-biblical social justice movement, not true biblical justice. You ought to care about the oppressed. You ought to care about the poor. You ought to care about the widow and the orphan. You ought to care about the immigrant. You ought to, because God does. And if you don't, you have to reckon with him, not me. But those who are driven by the social justice movement that's non-biblical, <clears throat> even those who would claim to be Christian, what they're really, if you, if you have enough of the conversation, what it really comes down to is you don't believe the gospel is going to change people. You really don't believe the gospel is going to change people's hearts. Because money's not going to do it. The program is not going to do it. Those things are helpful in some cases. But I have put all my chips, and I'll say to my brothers and sisters at Christ's Covenant, we have put all of our chips on the proclamation of the gospel as the thing that actually transforms human hearts. And you have obligations beyond that to see how we can help the poor, the immigrant, the widow, the orphan. But all of our chips are on the gospel. All of them. Nothing else transforms human hearts. Nothing. Nothing. It might make you nicer in terms of what the world says about you, those other methods. But nothing transforms the human heart except the gospel. And that was your experience if you're a Christian. It was certainly mine. Uh, the suffering question. Does your vision, I'm actually going to ask Chaz if you'll read that. Can you see that, Chaz? So, people know things based on what they've experienced, and some of those things are very negative. And what it sometimes sounds like when we address those negative experiences is we minimize them, not intentionally, but we start to minimize them, and say, you really need to think about it this way. And I get it, because I have those conversations too. Of, um, <clears throat> particularly with close family members who would say, um, you've never experienced what I've experienced. And I could just as easily turn around to them and say, and you've never experienced what I've experienced. And so there's no point in really having a conversation unless we have some degree of expectation that something is common. Something is common. Something of the lived human experience is common. But um, the problem here is, if, um, if you think your vision of justice 
turns the lived experience of hurting people into more pain. <clears throat> so um, if we're not listening to people, listening to what they've experienced, what, they, what pain they've experienced, um, and if we're minimizing that in some way, then the, the, the culture would say you're adding to their oppression. You're adding to their pain. And I would say minimizing is a strong word, but we need to listen to each other. That's what you're hoping we're doing every day, I hope. We're listening to each other, not just, not just saying things. But we're listening to each other. <clears throat> but those lived experiences, again, are extremely personal. That's the point. They're extremely personal. But they do not take into account all that there is to experience. Or all that there is to know or all that you can ever uh, encounter in this world. And some people would say, it doesn't matter. It's what I experienced. And it crushed me. And it's changed my life in a negative way. Just fill in the blank with all the things you're already thinking of, the negative things that happen to people. But don't allow them to get up and face the day. Or to get up after being beaten down again. Or wounds that got reopened 10 years later from something that happened a decade ago. Right? That's, those are real hurts. They're real pain. <clears throat> and um, the argument is if you don't allow that to be the authority, that lived experience, lived pain, then you're adding to the oppression. And I would say not so much. Because what we're really interested in ultimately is not just what I experienced what is true. If my experience in middle school in New Orleans with my African-American students um, <clears throat> had guided all of my life, I would be right there saying uh, some of the most negative things you could say about issues between races. I'd be, I'd be right there with you because it was an experience. I really had it, but it's not the truth. It doesn't mean that one race has all the issues or all the problems, or because their families, and this is what we say generally, because their families have broken down, that's the issue. And I would say, does that mean every family in the African-American community has broken down? Can I introduce you to some families that are, in some ways, models for mine? I would say more than that, some churches, African-American churches, whose relationships, I would say, man, we, we could learn a lot from our African-American neighbors. <clears throat> an, argue, um, uh, an article that came out um, years ago when the pandemic just started and all the social issues kind of popped up was what the American church can learn from the African-American church who dealt with um, issues and um, pushback, real oppression. We can learn a lot having our voice taken away. Um, there are people who've actually had that happen. We can learn a lot. But if my lived experience had led me to the conclusion of anybody of that tone, that skin tone, can't be trusted, I, I would be guilty of, of horrible, horrible information. What I would say is true, and it's not. So um, lived experiences do matter. 
lived experiences cannot always be authoritative. It does, and doesn't that add to the oppression? No, it doesn't. If we get to the truth, the truth is actually more of a relief than diving into more oppression or pain or suffering. Um, the way Jesus spoke of it is there's a freedom that comes from knowing the truth and that you can't find otherwise. You won't find in diving into difficult circumstances in your life, even though you've had them. Speaking. Even though you've had them. Uh, to, to let those be the authoritative way that you view all the world is not healthy. It's, it's, it's not even a way that Jesus would say the lens you should view all things by. All things to be viewed in light of what the truth is, ultimately leading to the gospel. Uh, counter evidence that is not taken into account does not reduce oppression, it increases it. This is that last point I just made. So if you make a claim, and I say there's evidence against that, and that's never taken into account, um, that doesn't protect the marginalized. If you're trying to protect the marginalized and offering all this data of how they're marginalized, and those generalities get challenged by somebody like me that says, well, what about this? And what about that? What about the, the degradation of the home, both in the white community and in the black community? What about those things? If you're not going to take those things into account, then you're not really uh, protecting anybody. If the truth is other, and you're fighting against the truth coming to bear on those things, you're not protecting. You're causing more. You're, you're as bigoted as the people that you're arguing against. Is that making sense? Counter evidence that's never addressed <clears throat> does not actually protect anybody. It actually leads to more uh, oppression in some ways. It's, a, it's the same bigotry that's being fought against. Last one, and then we'll get some uh, questions for everybody. Does your vision of justice turn the quest for truth into an identity game? And this is really kind of the question of uh, how much melanin in your skin versus how much merit that you have accomplished. Which one is the authoritative way to look at things? Um, using race, skin color, gender, sexuality, or any other dividing category as a way to deny legitimate concerns is acting like the bandits in the story of the Good Samaritan. In other words... If, if we were to use categories of those things and say, um, that's why you're having the issue. We're just as guilty of the bandits who came on, on the road and brutalized the Good Samaritan. Or the priest who walked by and said, not my problem. Go fix your community. Samaritan. Or traveler. Go fix your community. And then we'll talk. Uh, silencing someone because of their views different from the social justice crowd is not a protection, it is more bigotry. I'm going to let you read the questions above. I'm going to tackle a couple, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on those questions and your, your reflections. Your answer to number two really is did you get what this section, this lesson, this part of the book was about? Whatever your answer is to number two will reflect that. So somebody brave enough, bold enough, if you'll read one of those and say, here's what I think about it.
that's exactly the, the, the content is uh, truth and justice are, are linked. Superman said. Seems to be right. Truth and justice are linked. Can't, you can't separate them. If you're not going to find out the truth, you can't really, if we're not going to agree on what's true, we're not going to have any justice. That's a fact. And then secondly, tribes thinking of what I experience with my people, my, my this, my that, my categories, um, fights against all of that. Fights against all of that. You do have to acknowledge there are people who have experienced things because of their tribe. I'm not denying it. But I am saying, if that's your only source of truth, then justice can never happen. But particularly in a culture that says, that's your truth. <clears throat> um, one, of the, one of the criticisms is, that's your Western white man religion truth. And my response would be, what we believe in the, in the confessions, standards that we believe are traced back to the earliest days of the church, where the base of the church was Middle Eastern, North African, some from the Orient. They were not, they were not us. They didn't look like us. And so if, if that's your slam, I'd say you need to read a little more. You need to think a little more. You need to evaluate where did, where did this come from. It didn't come from Hernando, Mississippi. It came from the Middle East, North Africa. Yeah, Second John has that truth and love uh, combo over and over and over and over and over. Please. Hang, hang on one second, Miss Bobby. That, that's no um, monkey wrench throwing. That's, uh, that's lived experience, which I'm going to say absolutely. Can't let that be the only um, input you have is that's 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 the authoritative way to look at it is um, that uh, everything I'm experiencing is oppression because it's not I, you're not I'm not experiencing all that but there is a fair amount of that going on um, and it's why it's why a lot of us are sitting quiet is what do we say how do we do it because your approach does matter right which is as guilty of the opposite, right? So all the intersectionality of if you, if you can check off as many boxes of the group that you belong to, and that makes your voice more authoritative than Randy's, that's wrong. Yes. Now your experience is you're the authority, but what we have to bring all of those underneath is what does the authority of Scripture say about Randy's issue with being uh, targeted, which is there's, there's legit stuff happening there, and... Um, places, and by the way, we're talking about a very American experience right now. There are other places in the world that are like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Yeah. It's, it's, it's more than just... Um, <clears throat> the, caste, the caste system in India. Yeah. You see how we went from uh, white guy oppressed to caste system to the Delta is what's really the caste system. <laughs> um, Jim? So question one is, the, what is the kernel of truth in tribes thinking as an insight that Christians should take seriously? Is, that if, is it true that people have been oppressed, uh, dealt injustice in some way, shape, or form um, across the pantheon of time, 
you say the answer is no, you probably should stop speaking. You probably should, because that would be a crazy thing to say. But there are, there are Holocaust deniers, and I'm like, what on earth? There are people who deny the fact that um, there was mistreatment of a particular group. Or, um, there is something to the oppression. I'm just saying you can't let that be the authoritative approach to how we're going to deal with everything, because it's not. Truth has to be common to all of us, or else we'll never get to justice. That, that's a... Let me get to the last one before we get out of here. Um, so according to the scripture, God exhibits deep solidarity with the poor and commands us to care for them. What are some practical habits we can form to help us live these truths out? Here, here's what I mean by that. Um, they're, they're, they're called the, the quad that God identifies as people that he is, he is for. And it's not a race. It's not a um, particular tribe. It's Poor, the widow, the orphan, the invalid—those are the four. And if you if you struggle with that one, just hang back. I'll show you as many passages as you want to address, where God is going to be the defender of the poor, the defender of the widow, the defender of the orphan, the defender of the immigrant. He's going to be that. <clears throat> and what does that mean for us? All I put up there was the poor. So, uh, I need to make one distinction. Um, Leviticus tells us we're not to treat the poor with any partiality over the rich either. Particularly when it came to the legal system. You couldn't go to court and say, because he's poor, you should side with him. In fact, God forbids it. However, there is clear evidence that God is defending and for the poor in a way that he's not for the rich. And I say that again. That God is defending and for the poor in a way that he's not for the rich. And you'll have to take a few minutes and figure out why would he do that? Why would God not be for the rich in the same way that he is for the poor? You don't have any verses that tell you that God is the defender of the rich. You don't have any. I have, I have hundreds that will tell you God is the defender of the poor. And it's not because there's superiority in the poor not because what they have experienced is authoritative over all things. They're sinners just like we are, because everybody in here is rich. I'll just say it. Everybody in here is rich. and The fact that you don't think you're rich is part of your problem. <clears throat> you're the richest people that, that we know. If you got Jesus, you're the richest people, period. Right? It's not that the poor are better because they're poor. You will have to wrestle through I'll just save that one. If you'd like to come by and talk about it, this is the one that I'd love to talk about. There is a reason why he's the defender of the poor, but he's not the defender of the rich. There's a reason. And it's not because money is evil. It's, the, it's your love of it, and you're guilty of that too, and so am I. If you say, I'm not guilty of that, that's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, this is a trap for you, because that love for money is the root of all kinds of other things. The minute you say you're not guilty of it, you're guilty. I do know that some of you treat money differently than others. That's your call. I mean, God places it in your hands. Do what you believe is right. <clears throat> but it won't be that the money is what's evil, because it's not. It's what our heart does. It's what our hearts covet. That's why we compare ourselves to our neighbors. 
do things that are weird because of that. Right? So God's care for the poor and siding with the poor in a way that he doesn't side with the rich is not because they're bad. Not because they're bad. And we should have a plan and strategy. That's why we have deacons. They're to head up our, our strategy and our thinking and our execution for care for the poor, particularly in our midst. I would long for the day that we have poor people in our midst. And there's all kinds of discussions about that too. It's not because you're oppressing them. It's not why they're not here. It's not because you're the oppressor. There is something going on there that says um, we tend to find our own We always have to kind of push to see what, what that's about. Right? Everybody's guilty of it, too. By the way. Everybody's guilty of it. Uh, we're, we're past time. Anything else? Here we go. Anybody have a thought? Uh, she's asking the question number three. Hillary, very quickly. Well, I'd say a real practical one is we're in Advent season. If what the, the, the thing we're talking about is Jesus' first appearance in this world. If you're not thinking about why did he choose to come as nobody and poor, there's a reason for that. Right? He could have come as, a, as the wealthiest king in the history of the world. He chose that. Anything else? Going once, going twice. Um, I was trying to wrap it up when you raised your hand. So glad you did. Can't say anything better than that. Katie, would you pray us out?